With 160,000 actors joining the Writers Guild on strike, Hollywood is shut down in a historic labor struggle. The major studios are determined to push ahead with streaming and artificial intelligence in a way that threatens to decimate their employees' livelihoods, but unions are standing up and saying enough. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, 160,000 actors now on strike. This is really a historic challenge to the power of the big movie studio executives who are themselves very, you know, a very powerful component of the capitalist class in the United States. Yes, and I think that therein lies the enormous importance of this strike beyond the specific issues of those studios, the writers who went on strike first, now the actors who've joined them. There is a wave of militancy of working people across the United States. It's remarkable to see. We haven't seen anything like it for decades. You almost have to go back at least to the 1940s, if not earlier, to see the spirit, the enthusiasm, With these kinds of strikes, also the very impressive numbers, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people going on strike. If you add the UPS strike that's scheduled to start in a couple of weeks and so on, it is a remarkable period of time. And for me, the most interesting thing, beyond the most important, which is this rising of working people who are saying, really in a profound way, we are not going to be treated in the way that we have in the past. We're not going to be underpaid. We're not going to be abusively treated on the job. We're not going to be confronted with rising prices when our wages and salaries don't keep up. All of that is the most important. But right number two, and I think this is crucial to understand, is that these are working people who are saying something that challenges the capitalist system in a very profound way. And I'm not surprised that the mass media haven't picked it up. And what they're challenging is who decides how to install 
new technology. Whether that new technology is a machine, whether that new technology is new chemistry, new electricity, whether it's atomic energy, the computer, robots, or now artificial intelligence, capitalists have always insisted they are exclusively and alone the ones who get to decide whether, when, and how to install any new technology that comes along. And therein lies a power that the working class should never have allowed capitalists to take. Because what they do is they install the technology, in this case, artificial intelligence, in a way that improves their profits, because that's what they're in business to do. That's what every decision they make is made with, to use their language, profit is the bottom line. So what they're going to do is bring the technology in and use it to lay off large numbers of people, never to call them back, to use them maybe once and then through artificial intelligence, use their likeness or use their voice forever after without, of course, having to pay them because that's where the profit lies in replacing people and the uniqueness of a human being with a machine or a technology. And these strikers are saying, no, we who are affected by that technology we have a right to participate in deciding whether and how and where and when it is going to be used. And make no mistake, working people can use technology in a way that's good for them rather than use it in a way that's good for profits. That's a real struggle. And this strike is putting that on the agenda, making it clear. I'd love to talk about it here because it's such an important matter, but I don't want to monopolize the conversation. But I really want to take my hat off to the writers and the actors because they are not only making the point about treating workers properly, but they're making the point we want a say in how, when, where, what technology is used for, so it isn't only a profit mechanism at our expense. Well, I think we should go into that conversation. I mean, it's a crucially important issue that's facing, you know, workers not just in the entertainment industry, but Everywhere. all across the economy, the entire capitalist economy. People's jobs, you know, millions of people's jobs are at risk because of, you know, what some people are calling a, a new industrial revolution, you know, a, a transformation in the way production takes place on par with the invention of, say, the assembly line. Right. So, yeah, I mean, please elaborate on that, if you would. I mean, what are the stakes of the fight that we're talking about and how can organized labor play a huge role in that? Well, the stakes could not be higher. Let me do it by giving you a simple example, the way I would when I teach in the university. Let's have a, a simple story. We have a, a factory somewhere. Goods or services are produced. It doesn't matter. And we have 100 workers and an employer who hires the 100 workers, and they produce whatever the output is, you know, a 1,000 widgets or whatever you want to call them. And now imagine a new machine, a new technology, uh, robots, 
computers, it doesn't matter again, comes along and the employer looks at it and it comes to the employer's attention and he says to himself, our employer, wow, this machine, this computer program, whatever it is, makes my workers twice as productive as they used to be. In other words, the same worker working the same number of hours can produce twice as many units of my output that he or she did before. And the employer rubs his hands with the arrival of this new technology. And he says to himself, and believe me, this is exactly how it happens, I am going to get that new technology. When my old machines run out, I'm going to replace them with these new machines because they are so productive. And you know what? I'm going to fire half of my workers. Out of my 100 workers, I'm going to fire 50 of them because the other 50 that I keep with this new technology will be able to produce exactly as much output as I've always done. I can sell it as I always have, earn the same revenue that I always have, which included a nice profit for me, but now I have something extra. In addition to the profit I've also earned, I've got half of my former workers that I don't have to pay wages to anymore. And that money that I don't have to spend on wages, I get to keep expanding my profit geometrically. Fantastic. Oh boy, I love the technology. Now notice, the technology has been installed in a way that really enhances the profit of the employer and wrecks the life of half of his workers. By the way, these kinds of predictions are being made about artificial intelligence over the years ahead in every major magazine and newspaper in the country every week these days. But now let me take you through how things could be handled differently. Same new technology, same factory, same hundred workers, everything the same. But now a different decision. The decision is made, wow, a machine makes us doubly productive. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep all 100 workers. We're going to pay them the same wage we always did. But we're going to tell them, you only work four out of every eight hours of the day. In other words, you work half as much as you did before with this new technology being doubly productive, you will still, by working half time, produce just as many outputs as you always did. I can sell them as the employer. I make the revenue I always did and the nice modest profit I always did. What I don't have is 50 workers I'm not paying wages to anymore because I've kept all my workers and I'm paying them the same. What has been the gain here? The gain has been the life of the workers. Every worker now works a four-hour day. Every worker has leisure, time to make relationships with their family, their friends, to indulge their artistic or sport or any other passions that they have. It is a transformation in the quality of life 
as all of these workers work half as much as they did before for the same wage. Well, that's perfectly possible. The example I just gave you is absolutely mathematically perfect. I've done this work many times. Here's the point. If we choose the second, we will have helped the large majority of the people in any workplace, the workers, the employees. Their leisure will have been increased. Their work time will have been cut in half. Their lives will be radically altered. That's one way we can handle technology. The other way, which is the first story I told you, is we handle the technology in a way that makes a big extra profit for the employer and puts 50 people out of 100 on the unemployment line, unable to pay for their children's education or anything else that they had been able to afford before they were fired. If you understand this, you'll know why workers have been very skeptical about technological advance. That's not because they oppose progress. has nothing to do with that. I gave you an example a moment ago in which the workers have every interest in bringing new technology in because it gave them half their work lifetime back. They're not against the technology. Here comes the punchline. They're against the way capitalism introduces and installs new technology, doing it for the profit of the few instead of life-transforming freedom for the many. The critique of capitalism is therefore not that it develops technology. That's a strength of capitalism. The weakness of capitalism is it uses it for the profit of a few at the expense of the many. That's what's wrong with capitalism. And that's what the strikers, the writers and the actors, that's what they're teaching everyone. That's what they're learning themselves. They want a hand. They want artificial intelligence to create opportunities for their art their skill, their talent, to reach more people, to give them more opportunities to show what their music, their dance, their skill at writing poetry, what it can do for a culture. Artificial intelligence could be a real culture changer, a real changer in the lives of the artists, which if they had more leisure and had more time would do better art for the rest of us who consume what they produce. We'll not have any of that because six already rich Hollywood studios want to use AI to get even richer than they already are. It's really an obscene either or, and we all, all of us, ought to be on the side of the writers and the actors because what they're doing is not only important for them, it's important for everyone whose work and life are going to be changed by the latest technology. And again, the basic question is in whose benefit these changes will be brought into the production process. Yeah, very interesting points, Professor Wolf. 
when you think about how artificial intelligence really works, it it almost introduces this whole new form, this whole new layer of exploitation. Because, you know, essentially what these artificial intelligence models do is that they take all of the existing information, all of the existing data that's out there, or as much of it as the artificial intelligence company can feed into their particular model. And then based on all of that, the program is able to generate something that's, you know, maybe arguably, but arguably new. So what a lot of artists, writers, actors have been raising, uh, especially since ChatGPT came out, is concerns related to essentially intellectual property. Like, you know, I produce this work of art, whether it's, you know, a book or a movie or whatever it is. And then, you know, that's not for some artificial intelligence company to to come along and, you know, increase their profits and and actually to maybe even make me as an artist obsolete. You know, generally it's bosses, it's companies that raise intellectual property concerns. But in this case, I mean, workers have a, a very legitimate grievance, don't they? Yes, they do. But I don't want to give up on the on the substance of this either. The greatest art in my experience of a lifetime of appreciating most of the arts and learning about them is that the artist is a unique vantage point. How that woman, how that man, how that person lived his, her, their lives, how they processed all the information coming in is then filtered through the unique experiences they've had to come up with a response to all of that in the form of a picture they paint, a dance they perform, a book they write, whatever. And these are always, on the one hand, universal, and on the other hand, individual. And I'm amazed at the notion that a machine could or would do this. Because it can't. A machine, if it takes in everything, then we no longer have the specificity, the uniqueness of an individual who produces a work of art out of the uniqueness of their lives and experiences. And if the machine doesn't process everything, then what it'll do is produce based on whatever the individual who feeds into that machine whatever stuff that individual has chosen based again on who and what that individual is. We are not going to escape the fact that we are human beings. And what we do with that technology is going to be shaped by the institutions we allow to exist in our human communities. I want my fellow human beings to be producing, to be filtering the universe as they experience it, to teach me about it, to give me sensitivities, awarenesses I wasn't able to get. That's what I want. I don't want it to be done by a machine. I want it to be done by a person whom I can learn about so that I can engage not only the finished product of our piece of art, but the process of creating it, the person who created it. I'm fascinated by that. It's part of the appeal a work of art has as you reconstruct its context and how it was produced. That's part of its charm and part of its uniqueness. 
I don't want some nameless person whom I'll never know, who made some decision I don't know about as to when and how and what to feed into the AI processor. This is not what I want. It has nothing to do with what I understand artwork to be. And I think those actors and writers, that's why I feel it's so important. It's not just about don't take my job from me. It's about not understanding what you could have and should have done. Let me use a crude metaphor. When people used to produce food, they would produce it, cook it, mix it, spice it, to create something that represented what they learned from their parents, what they got from their culture. That's why we have unique cuisines around the world. Now companies come along, they're not interested in unique, they're interested in profit. They want to make many of these meals quickly, maybe freeze them so that you can get them out of the store. They keep telling us, gee, we're making the, the food available. Yeah, well, we know what you're doing. You're making profit. And in the course of it, you make shortcuts because they're profitable. And pretty soon, our cuisine is gone. And what we have is the same pablum from one end of the country to another. McDonald's hamburger is the same in Florida as it is in Alaska. But you know, once upon a time, those cuisines were quite different. Very variegated in Alaska and in Florida, and very different one from the other. We give up a lot when we allow profit to go between what's produced and what we as consumers want to take in. What we give up is all the unique qualities that human beings give to each other, teach each other, produce for each other by allowing the insertion of people who are not concerned with the quality of the production or the quality of the consumption. They're there to make money. And the only way they can do that is to mass produce and destroy difference, uniqueness, variability. And so we get what we have today. The mass of people eat material that they shouldn't, that isn't even good for them, lacks all the nutrition and everything else. I'm sorry to belabor this metaphor. And who we have on the other hand, the super rich. And you know what they like? They like to go to a tiny restaurant in an obscure place where a chef is able to charge so much money for the dinner that the chef can pour into what he cooks, what grandmothers used to do all over the world, but can't anymore because they're outcompeted by a capitalism that has rendered profitable what used to be great. This is going to happen to our films, our books. We're gonna get routine machine product, and we will say, woo, it's cheaper, maybe, for a while. But as soon as the profit makers have gotten rid of the skilled, unique craft work they replaced, up will go the prices, and we'll end up with having to pay the high prices, but getting crap instead of 
what the human being is capable of doing. I think that's what they're trying to teach us. Otherwise, we're going to get the same crowd scene in every movie from now on. You know why? Because it's cheaper rather than have a new group in the background with new dresses, new outfits, new expressions, new, 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 coming to bring to us the latest in the cultural transformation that is part of human society. No, we'll get the rehash, or we'll get a rehash adjusted so it doesn't look like the rehash that it is, and then we'll figure that out, and then we'll be back to square one. It's very sad to watch. This issue has been fought in the history of capitalism many times. There were people, the Luddites, back in England a couple of centuries ago, working people who were fired because a new machine came in. And you know what they did? At night, they crawled back into the factory, broke in, and smashed the machines. They didn't understand the machine was never the problem. It was the capitalist system that used the machine for profit and thereby deprived us all of what those machines could have done for us, but never did because they were used instead for the profits of the employer class. Well, this is a fascinating discussion. We're going to need to come back to this again and again, I'm sure, on the show. Yes, I'm sure we will. That's all the time we have for today, though. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He's the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He is the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.